This is the Enneagram 8 Podcast, and we're here to take you inside the armor. We are so excited to share something new we've been working on. We have now launched the Enneagram 8 community. This is a community where Enneagram 8s can come together to feel seen and heard for the heart of who they are, a place where you can just be you. If you're interested in joining us here, go to the Enneagram8community.com to sign up. We've been hearing for a while now that tri-type 845s are like rare unicorns in the Enneagram universe. And so the fact that Tess was willing to come and be interviewed on our podcast felt like an especially big win. The 4-5 usually means that you are not super forthcoming with wanting to intentionally share your inner depths with the world. We'd also heard that the kind of hopeful, bright, sparkly quality that Aaron and I can bring to even dark topics because of the seven inside both of us is usually off-putting to 845s who are almost more at home with the darkness. So on the whole, I'm going to say this was a real win. And as you will see, we really needed to hear from her because there are many aspects to this tri-type that could easily cause them to be mistyped as fives. We'd be particularly interested in hearing from any of you that also have five in your tri-type. Let us know the things you hear in this interview that demarcate five from eight. I can definitely speak to the four in her that is very much alive and well. To any eight four fives out there who, when you listen to Tess, it feels like home, please do get in touch. We would love to add another eight four five interview to this season. Um, have you been enjoying Big Hormone? It's, I mean, it's negative. You're right. Incredibly. Kind of a helpful way to like go into it, especially as yeah. I've been digging more into my tri-type too. I've been yes. trying to lean into the emotions of the four and be okay with that, which my mm-hmm. eight's like, no, emotions are not okay, right? And so it's been helpful to hear that perspective because from the Christian perspective where I was introduced to the Enneagram, it is very positive and very, right. the discussions of eight are very integrated eights and like fully healthy eights. Like they're kind of real about not so healthy eights sometimes, which I feel like we all, you know, can. Right. <laughs> it's- what I appreciate is they're actually saying like the eight, four, five just has a natural ability to navigate darkness. And yeah. I was really curious if you mm. really are an eight, four, five, you'd be the first because they yeah. say there's something about the four and five that like straddles mm-hmm. the abyss. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my gosh, I so get that. Okay, okay. So Uh I really can't wait to kind of dig in a little because apparently we're just not going to have a lot of you even listening to our podcast because Aaron and I, you know, we're pretty overt with our um, refusal to to like choose darkness. So it's just rare to find you. Yeah. Yeah. What I really resonated with it wasn't the darkness and negativity, but I will always choose the unknown and the abyss over the known. Like I'm always going to say, what am I questioning and what am I doubting about my faith and how do I dig into that? Not always with the intent of getting to integration and getting to belief, like with the intent of, I want to lean into that. Like I'm drawn to leaning into my doubts all the mm-hmm. time. I feel more at home in that than blind faith all the yeah, time. For you, you really can claim that doubt actually draws yeah. you closer rather yeah. than further. Yeah. Yeah. And isn't scary at all. Yeah, no, I love it. It's like that feels safer than belief. If I'm fully believing everything, it feels like there's something missing. Which is what propels you deeper, 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 deeper. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you have the the you have the depth of five always drilling down, but then you mm-hmm. have the depth of four, which is an emotionally bottomless well. Yeah. Ooh, that's fun. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a joy. Yeah, people just yeah love it. My friends are always like, okay, stop listening to your moody music and like let's just go have some fun or something. Like, come on. <laughs> I'm really curious if you have something just on hand that Emk has said that really sticks with you as being like profoundly true about eight four five. I feel like there was one point in time in which she said that eights do have a selfish bend to it. And I feel like I appreciated the acknowledgement of that because especially again, I, I love all the people that you all have interviewed, but it's like this righteous, you know, strength yes. and this, this positive, powerful bed. I definitely, I see parts of that in myself, but I didn't, there are a lot of people that you all have interviewed that I resonate with on the most basic fundamental levels of an eight, of the independence of, you know, not being held down of the strength of the power of the energy. But there are a lot of that, like, always needing to be the positive, <laughs> like always, yes. always having a righteous fight, right? Always yeah. having, you know, those sorts of things that didn't really resonate with me. And so I feel like when I started listening to <laughs> listening to him, I was like, oh my gosh, I feel like almost like this resonates a little more with, you know, and even when I reflect back on, on myself, there have been times where I can say I've been the champion, I've been the, you know, but he like very much was like, eights are not the champion of the underdog. Like that's a, a false narrative that would be adhering kind of to to the standards of what society says, right? And eights are kind of like buck the whole system, right? Like we're in it to like be the best and, you know, be ourselves and not conform to to those kinds of ideals. And so I like appreciated that a lot. I mean, I definitely feel like at some points I championed the underdog, but that really resonated because it allowed me to reflect and to say, okay, I don't always have to like reconcile what I want with you know, what is going to be best for other people sometimes. And that mm. might seem like selfish, but I was like, okay, I naturally have a bent to say, what do I want to get out of this? Like, I don't always have to be mindful of what, mm -hmm. you know, others want. And I feel like there was freedom and liberty in him saying that mm. to kind of break free from like the notion that all my energy always should be with the intention of changing the system or yeah. <laughs> um, champion the underdog. Sometimes my innate self is just, I want to do this because I want to do that. Recognizing yes, yeah. that that in essence is eightness, you know? <laughs> in essence, I would actually say it's eight fourness. That's the tricky thing with, with MCAT oh, yeah. is he only has his own lens, right? And so the yep. reality is his idea of what an eight is. So I relate. This is why yeah. I'm so happy to talk to you because I have mm. four so strongly. And it's definitely my second number. And yeah. so when he's speaking as an eight four, I'm like, no, I understand you, dude. Yeah. Like, I, I can't yep. help it. I revel in the deep depths of myself just to mm -hmm. do that. It's not with a goal in mind necessarily yeah. to better other people. I'm just having mm -hmm. a ball doing it. And I could just swim in the depths of my own self. And mm -hmm. so I can't be at all surprised that 845s would absolutely swim in a cesspool of yeah. depth. I think what he's describing is 8-4. And mm -hmm. that is the service he's done me because I, yeah. I don't think hearing from Christians speak about 8-4 is going to acknowledge the depth mm -hmm. of how selfish it can be. Yeah. And then I want to also add that I believe that the inherent gift is we can navigate those depths. Then once we can do that, if we have the impulse to share it, we can then teach people it's not so scary and teach people, yeah. you know what, in there is gold. You know, I've spent my whole life wading around in those waters. Well, do you want me to mm -hmm. hold your hand and like 
you know, walk you through what that looks like <laughs> or whatever. So yeah. I don't know if that if that helps because I think legitimately eights without four, their drive is far more other focused, yeah. far far more. And I've always felt like a selfish schmuck by comparison. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Thanks. Right. Yes. No, no, no like... it's real. It's real. <laughs> and I'm like, I get that, and I'm like, I see those people, and I'm like, I I feel like I can tap into that every once in a while, but I'm like, not my know. default. I'm like, my decisions are always going to be about me. They're That's always right. going to be about it's me. It's almost so. like people. People benefit from you from the spillover. It's like the yeah, spillover yes. of being around you. They benefit, but you're not thinking consciously. Okay, I'm going to present this. <laughs> no. Oh my gosh, for sure. And then that five, where I'm just like, I spend so much time in my own head by myself. I'm like, and I literally, I mean, I do research, and I'm a scholar, you know, for a living. Yeah. And so I'm like, in myself, thinking about myself, what comes out is when I have to interact with people in that's right. meetings or classes <laughs> or whatever. Then you get me right, but like, that's right. you get the best of me when I've had all of that time to journal and reflect and be introspective and well you know in the in the bible it talks about how there's the sending out of us to spread out into the world mm-hmm. to shine the light but in the old testament solomon had this radiant shiny palace and kingdom and people came to him mm-hmm. and i always think about eights of other tri-types they really are the go out they have the drive yeah. to go out and shine their intense light on other people. But the eight, four, five, and I would even argue I'm more the come to me kind mm. of. Um, we are digging deep and whatnot. And it's like the people that come to us get the spillover. And that's okay. We yeah. don't have to be the intrepid like wanderer yeah. seeking out the mission. A lot of the time it comes to us because people are compelled almost like bugs to a light. They just are compelled to be around the depth. And so they find us. Yeah. That's so funny. Have you found like people find you? That has happened to me at so many points in my life. I am never one to put myself out there or like get in the middle of things. And there's situations in which in a social setting, yes, I can propel that energy and start to connect with people. But started a PhD program in um, in the fall here in DC. And so brand new people. And I find like people would come to me and people would ask me questions and started having study groups. It's been crazy how friends have just kind of formed around me and people just right. come to me. And Okay, well, we're clearly, <laughs> we're clearly speaking the same language. I am a PhD student at Howard University in Washington, D.C. I study sociology, and then I really examine, through my research, the intersection of inequality, stratification, um, and religious systems. And I kind of come from a little bit of an interesting academic background. My undergrad was in social sciences. Then I got my MA thesis actually in theology with a heavy emphasis on philosophy. And I really examined, through my master's, the conflation of theology of wealth and success in the megachurch with the American dream. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. it's heavy and I love it. And it was so interesting. And I'm like, I just want to pick it back up and continue that research soon. But Uh, but yeah, so I'm, uh, you know, in my uh, late 20s. And, um, and yeah, just kind of loving life here in DC and studying and all the things that I get to do in my program here. I was introduced to the Enneagram by a friend in undergrad, and we had these kind of like what they were called Ignatian wisdom groups. So they were all about connecting. You had to be like a in your last year at the university, and it was like reflecting on your experience at the university. It was just really great reflection questions that happened every couple of weeks, and these really great, like basically small groups. And they kind of introduced the framework there, and I really wasn't sure um, because I had kind of been given a link to a test, and I had a friend that knew a lot more about it, and she kind of 
kind of led me through kind of like a typing session. And she um, typed me as a five initially. And so I spent a couple of years thinking that I was a five. And of course, my research perspective, I dug into kind of all the literature I can find and all the books that I can read. And there was something that just didn't resonate about a five mm-hmm. because of the conversation around energy specifically and yeah. how you have a very limited and, and kind of capped out. You have boundaries around your energy. And you need a lot of alone time, like those sorts of things. And, and then the motivation, right? The motivation for like competency alone and to know and to gain knowledge for the sake of gaining knowledge. And some of those things resonated, but they weren't uh, the core of who I was. The childhood Mm -hmm. wounds didn't match up, like all of those things, right? And so I was like, there's something that just didn't fit. And then I um, received another book from um, a different friend about the Enneagram and went through a workshop in Omaha and it clicked Mm -hmm. when I heard the description of the eight. And I always gravitated towards that because eights and fives are connected. And so Mm -hmm. I always knew a little bit about the eight, but walking through that and really learning about it, I was like, oh, this is my core. It's mm-hmm. the it's the independence. It's the need to to have this this sense of yeah of passion and purpose and strength. And in having that that really click into place, it actually helped me extend a lot of grace and understanding towards the five of me. Yes. Um, and, and recognize that okay, I do get to that. And the parts that I resonated about the five when I'm in a place of stress, when I become reclusive, and so that that line made a whole lot of sense. And I said, okay, now I can really see that. Do you have any stories that stand out that you would say are for sure eight stories? Oh, gosh, I feel like I can pull on so many. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I was one story that really clicked into place at my while I was working on my master's, I was working full time for a nonprofit organization doing their evaluation and research. And there was one point in time in which my boss and another leader in the organization decided that it was not best to give some raw data to someone else in the organization based on their surveys. And the person they wanted to withhold this information was the trainer, the person that was doing the training. And I pushed back and I I talked to them because I was like, okay, I get that you're my boss and I need to understand why you're withholding this information. And it felt like a politics game. And yeah, I decided I was like, she needs this information to do her job successfully. So I just emailed it to her directly. And I I definitely got a slap on the wrist for that (laughs) and uh, talking to because I didn't respect the channels of authority and the decisions that were made. But I was like, she needs this information to do her job. And it's my job to ensure that people have the correct information to make informed decisions. So that's probably one of my most <laughs> archetypal eight stories. Yeah, definitely the bypassing the authority yep. bit. I just can't see a five doing that. <laughs> Not comfortably. Anyway. No. There are some things that seem to be in line with a lot of what other people have said regarding eights. Like I have inside a, a high amount of energy. I love adventure. I enjoy being around people, especially from the social science perspective that I come from. But then there's this other part of me that is, there just seems to be a lot of internal tension. Like I really enjoy spending time by myself and I spend so much time in my own head thinking and overthinking and, and creating new maps and pathways for where I'm going. And so, you know, and, and then also kind of on top of like my own perspective, I feel like I'm always reading people and assessing people, seeing where they fit. I think that eightness of like where they fit within the hierarchy of the group dynamics and all those sorts of things. And so I feel like there's a, a lot of always like constant tension inside and these these micro decisions about how to show up in a space and how to navigate it successfully. Where do I need time by myself to think and process? And where do I then go out into a space to champion that information and 
share that information with others. And so, you know, I just feel like at some times I don't resonate with some of the eight descriptions because I do feel like I need a lot more introspection and solitude. Like I really appreciate that. And so, yeah, I guess my landscape is turbulent on the inside because it's a constant ebb and flow of like, I have all this energy. (laughs) And sometimes it's like, I just need to go for a run. And sometimes it's like, I need to sit down and read a book from cover to cover. (laughs) And sometimes it's like, I want to have a incredibly deep conversation with someone about issues that are really impacting them. So (laughs) I'm staring at this quote that I sent you and you're basically putting words to it, but it says that this is the most complex and contradictory (laughs) tri-type. It's subject to great fluff. The tricky bit is that there isn't a social number in there to smooth the way. So you don't have three, six or nine, which is attachment, right? Uh, I don't either. I don't either. And so I relate to that. There's just a bit of a, a alien loner quality that goes on and we always feel slightly apart and other Mm. and thankfully our inner landscape is so fascinating that we can enjoy our life anyway but it does (laughs) it just becomes very stark when when Mm -hmm. I'm out in the world sometimes that I'm out in the world but I'm not fully in it yeah oh all Um, the time I feel right right? any given moment there's this ability to like withdraw and and assess the situation. And, and yeah, I feel like that sometimes I like feel like I'm a fly on the wall rather than actually like a part of this. And then there are other times where I'm like, feel like I'm in the center of the dance floor and very, very difficult to describe. And so yeah, that idea of being totally conflicted on the inside or complex is definitely resonates. It's hard because, you know, I I feel like what I've appreciated about the Enneagram and the tri-type journey and the discussions that are had on, on your guys's podcast, as well as others, is that I think it gives credence and it gives acknowledgement to that reality. You know, so many other personality assessments or things like that put us into dichotomous boxes. And I have Mm -hmm. always really, really struggled with that because I'm not introverted nor extroverted. I'm like a lot of both, like I think and I perceive. It's really, really hard to describe that to people because I feel like I never fit cleanly in one box or another. How do others perceive you? Okay, so I think I get a lot of, again, the some of the maybe like archetypal eight responses. I've been told I'm, you know, intense, clinical, intimidating. The amount of times I've been called that, I could be a millionaire. And I get the phrase that I'm emotionally detached a lot, which is such a stark contrast to my inner life of like feeling all the things all the time a lot from the probably from that four perspective of like, I just feel like I sit in that a lot, um, but but don't necessarily obviously communicate that to others. There's been this a couple funny instances of that, you know, just having started this program and meeting a lot of new people in the last year where there have been several instances in which friends that I've met here, once they get me outside of the school setting, they're surprised that I'm fun. I had one friend that was like, gosh, I just like you all seem so serious and you're just knowledgeable. You can turn to you for help with stats or, you know, whatever it is. And they're like, gosh, you just like are such an adventurer and you're so much fun and you're spontaneous. And I just don't feel like I see that, you know, (laughs) And so I was like, that surprised me that they don't see that because I have done a lot of like adrenaline, you know, crazy fun adventure things in my life. And just like, I guess they meet me in a context of being the scholar. So (laughs) yeah, but I think it's just interesting that 
difference, but I also think it kind of depends for me what setting someone meets me in because it's family and friends who've known me for a very long time that see me as the person to turn to to make plans or to do something fun or to always know what's happening. It's always a little bit of a shift for them to think about me as doing the scholarly research, like doing work in a doctoral program, you know, so on and so forth. So I think that's kind of illuminates the fact that there's a lot of complexity with who I am internally. Yep. No, I'm trying to hold the space for the four that you have with my daughter who's a five and it's just (laughs) so complicated (laughs) you're all held together in one body it doesn't make sense sometimes and I'm like I feel like I have the whole like angel on one shoulder devil on the other shoulder like internally in my head all the time talking yeah and MK he talks about himself because he doesn't hold back at all he's like I'm a piece of shit like I (laughs) if you knew what was happening inside me you'd run (gasps) screaming Oh, 100%. And like, that's so difficult to reckon with from a faith perspective. Because I'm like, I have all these thoughts inside, like, do other people think these things? Because I'm like, this really like is not good. Something about their heaviness. I mean, like I talked about earlier with like the unknown. It's like, it feels safe. It feels safe to sit in that space. Whoever wrote the notes on this tri-type nailed it because it sounds like you're absolutely fitting into this. They said that this tri-type is intensely interested in the psychology of other people. They like to deconstruct present systems and they're ontological terrorists. (laughs) I need to get that phrase tattooed on. You like to poke at systems and really rip them to shreds and then rebuild. Absolutely. That's literally the job of a sociologist is to critically examine our systems and our institutions. I specifically picked Howard because they don't just train high quality, well-established sociologists. They train critical sociologists, which is like we only ask questions and research specific lines of inquiry if it can result in systemic change. We always have the end goal in mind of how is this going to impact our systems and our institutions and our public policies. And so 100%, I think in the in the academic space, it's more reformist rather than yeah. revolutionary. Like I wish it was a little more revolutionary. There's like a ton of people deconstructing their Christian faith right now. Have, have you been mm-hmm. doing all that? Yep, several times. I've gone through points of deconstruction <laughs> and reconstruction. Absolutely. I mean, and that's what draws me actually to study religion and spirituality from the sociological perspective is that we don't always understand how much our place of origin, our family, our personal lived experiences, how we're wired, how much those socio-political demographic indicators of ourselves informs our faith, right? Like our faith perspective is like, you know, God got me and I had this experience and I became a Christian, but in so many ways, right, these outside factors influence how and why and in what ways we believe and in what ways that belief manifests in our behaviors and our attitudes in the world. And so absolutely, I've gone through personal deconstruction and it never phases me. You know, it never worries me. And people around me are like, oh my gosh, I see like, you're not praying as much, you're not journaling as much. And I have really good community around me or like, okay, have you found to church, you know, where you're at and how are you doing with things? And it never faces me because there's something so comforting and so 
intriguing and so enticing about wading into the unknown and being being able to question what I believe and how I believe because I am certain that when I sink into that and I create space for that and I allow that to happen in my life that I will walk out of whatever that looks like and wherever I walk towards right I'll walk out with more certitude more of an acknowledgement of who I am and who the world is and and my place in it so absolutely I've gone through deconstruction and reconstruction several times <laughs> I feel like just like the mountains inside of me that are a little chaotic that's 100 percent my faith journey as well. I came from like a really strict reformed background where a five-ish type person would really thrive, I feel, mm. because you drill down and then a five would be happy to stick it out there. Sure. Whereas the four would propel you um, and the eight would propel you outward into drilling down yeah. in other camps as well. And so mm-hmm. I, I just wasn't happy to sit drilled down there because I knew there was more. So at this point, my life has been utterly invaded with the Holy Spirit. When I grew up, they didn't even talk about him. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious what your brain does or whether it can even make space for something as mystical as Holy Spirit. That is a great question. And I think there's there's something about the balancing of the four and the five, I think, buttressed by the confidence that an eight brings. I grew up Catholic. And so there was like slight acknowledgement that there was a Trinity, but not a lot of practical implications for that in everyday life. And then I took like a hard left into like charismatic spirituality <laughs> in, um, you know, like from the tradition and the the mysticism that's found a little bit in the Catholic faith. And I, I'm a little bit weirdly in between right now. Um, and so I feel like there's something that there's something that I appreciate about kind of the Catholic perspective that I grew up from that I needed to go through the deconstruction of Catholicism to get to, which is the the ability to hold mystery. And, and I feel like that allows my five to be okay. And I literally on my arm have tattooed, there will be an answer with the acknowledgement <laughs> that I will not have the answer on this side of heaven. Like I acknowledge that. And like most of my conversations with God, most of my prayer life, most of my journals are like, why is this happening? Right. (laughs) It's like frustration from the perspective of unknowing, right. Not knowing. And I think what what I've appreciated and come to really claim about my Catholic upbringing is the ability to, to almost allow mystery a seat at the table. Like it always has to be there. I think that is the gift that you bring with, with all of this is being deeply able to navigate unknown and to tell us all it's okay. Yeah. Like it's more than okay. There's Mm -hmm. a gift in it. Yeah. I've led Bible studies and small groups and even my previous job with the nonprofit worked with youth. And I would talk with young kids that didn't know what they wanted to do or what they wanted to be or what their passion and purpose was. And I said, that is the best place to be. I would always mm-hmm. tell people that, right? Like the world tells you, you need to know exactly who you're going to be when you grow up, when you're like five. Right. And I went through multiple iterations of thinking that I knew what I wanted to be. And then when I finally let go of the expectations of what the world was telling me to do, to sit with who I really am and wade into that mystery and that unknown and be comfortable with it, that's where I really was able to grasp and understand my love of research and social science and understanding people and systems and institutions. And I could preach on and on about the beauty that comes from mystery, because what happens when we wade into the unknown is that we are shedding other people's expectations and the world's expectations. And, you know, in order to reclaim some truth and authenticity, 
you know, in ourselves. So hard because I feel like I have a, a multi-pronged mission, right? It's like <laughs> holding that space for mystery through my work, through my research, um, through my education, empowering people with the knowledge to understand our society. I think that's some of the, the most practical knowledge that people need because they see themselves as individuals. They see the interpersonal dynamics and not a lot of people are thinking about the systemic and institutional dynamics, right? And then in my mind, knowledge is the pathway to liberation. And so under understanding the mystery. It's being willing to sit in that, but also continually being curious. Like you can't just sit in the mystery, right? Like I love the mystery and I will sit in it, but like we need to be like in my mind, and maybe that's the eight part that, you know, encompasses all of this. It's a point on the journey. It's a stop and it can be as long as you need it to be. And you will come to more stops of mystery and more stops of dwelling, you know, at any point in your life. But in my mind, it's always with a movement of, of how do we work through this? How do we sit in it? How do we acknowledge it so that we can get to a point of, of liberation, of full integration, out of, out of wholeness in who we are? Okay, I love being an eight. It's heavy to carry sometimes, but I love it. And I think best parts about being an eight is just this like unsatiable drive and passion and energy. People like ask me all the time how I do it. And and there was one <laughs> point in time, one of my, actually someone I didn't know very well, I was in Greece working with um, refugees and went on kind of on a day trip away from the the refugee area that we were working in just to kind of get out of the, the hardship of that for a moment. And so we went to Corinth and we kind of walked around the area and we were talking about the letters to the Corinthians and Paul's journey there. And, you know, of course they were asking questions and I just knew all the answers, right? Like when he went and, you know, what he said in this text and, and this chapter. And one of the people on the day trip with me was like, gosh, it must be exhausting to be inside your head. <laughs> and I, I had never thought about it like that before because it's just myself. It's who I am all the time. I can't divorce myself from myself. Like I can't take myself out of that to acknowledge right. the fact that other people's brains and bodies and souls aren't always constantly running, you know, this energy. Does your mind um, feel more like a playground, though, than, than a prison? Because the mm. sense I get is that for you, it's actually kind of fun. It's the most fun. I yes. love it so much. I would never in a million years talk about my mind as a prison because right. I just, it's this place of continual fascination and continual inquiry. And it's like I can sit with a question and debate it within my own brain, right? From both sides and just being able to wrestle with what's going on in the world and around me. It's, yeah, I absolutely so that, love it. <laughs> the reason I'm saying that is because there are other humans where it really does seem like their mind is actually a torture chamber. It's like they're tormented by their own hamster wheel. It's like an unkind taskmaster in a way, yeah. but mm. you don't have that. So that's why I was wondering if for you, <laughs> if you remove the doubt inducing anxiety building taskmaster could actually enjoy it. <laughs> oh, there is a, I don't know that there've ever been moments where I haven't enjoyed being in my own head. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I hear about five. My daughter's described her brain as like a messy room with stuff all over the room and she can pluck up, you know, a t-shirt from the floor and it's a thought that she, she put there a while ago and she can always remember oh. where she put like the objects that she's attached to a thought that she puts up in her room. And I was like, it's not organized. She's like, no, it's messed. It's like a bombed out room. Oh my God. But I know exactly that where the pen is and what corner I threw it in. And I know what it's attached to. I'm like, oh my goodness. Like <laughs> That is so great. Okay. It reminds me, I had a, a friend I had kind of this dialogue with and, and I described my own brain as a, a bunch of little 
filing cabinets, like the catalog cards in libraries and like stacks upon stacks of them and like old wood that has been aged. So there's definitely organization to it, but it's also, there's so much character, right? I could just like sit in that room forever and smell, you know, the old book library smell and yeah, absolutely. But you have a mental room and that's what is five. I think I Mm -hmm. want someone to add to the literature. If ones have an inner critic, fives have an inner room. Yes. I do not know what you're talking about. I do not. I do not. Everything for me is intuitive. I pull it Mm. out of a cloud that is drifting around me. Mm. At the moment, it just dawns on me. There is nothing pre-filed away. I I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) It's interesting, though, to balance that with the gut instinctual yes. center of eight because right. I feel like I, I lead for sure with that. But the filing yeah. cabinets are always there as confirmation for the choice that I make. And this might be my four tapping in. Sometimes balancing the emotions that I pick up in other people is sometimes difficult, especially when, you know, the logical part of my brain thinks that they're, you know, wanting to like validate their feelings, but also recognizing that they might be unfounded given the the contextual situation is, mm. is sometimes difficult. And then my eight wants to go in and like, you don't need to feel that way because yes. this is happening or this, you know, you didn't take into account this piece of information. And, and so I feel like I'm always like having to cage my eight yes. tiger in situations like that, because I do very like intuitively pick up on what people are feeling. And then the logical part is like, but it doesn't really make sense for them to feel that way. And so mm-hmm. like, I, I need to like reel myself back in order to really like honor where they're coming from and what they're feeling and allow them to feel that without trying to like fix it with more information that they're like not seeing. Right. So I think that's a big one. And then I think because I'm able to maybe more emotionally detach from myself, sometimes like I have great people in my life, but I feel like there's a difference between self-disclosing and vulnerability. And I don't weigh that line very well. Like I, I share who I am and I, I share experiences I've gone through and I share things with people as I'm, I'm building friendships and making choices about what I share and how I connect with people. Like I share things that people might think are vulnerable, but I'm not necessarily tapping into the emotional engagement of that. Yes. And so in my mind, it isn't truly vulnerability. Like there's this separate back closet <laughs> that's actually yes. the vulnerable space. And I'm letting you into like the, the antechamber right? Like I'm not letting Mm -hmm. you back into there yet. And I think I've really been trying to be very discerning about that with all of these new relationships in my life, having moved and having started this program, like everyone in my day-to-day life I've met within the last year. I want to get to a place of great deep friendships, but there's part of me that's always resistant to like true vulnerability. I think save space for the mystery and be okay with that. I think also there's a whole lot of power in our heads and in our hearts, not just our gut. And so I think in my mind, my message, and this is speaking from someone who has a lot of a lot of head and a lot of heart, as well as my gut, but tapping in to those or finding people that lead with those in order to to approach situations in the best way tap into your head and to your heart in order to complement the great work that your gut is doing all the time. Where do you sit in a room full of people? Ooh, the edge where I can see everyone. Three words that describe you. Independent, intuitive, and inquisitive. What makes you cry? Injustice and oppression. What is your spirit animal? Ooh, I don't know. My favorite animal is an octopus. So I'm going to go with that. Can blend in where needed, <laughs> can stand out where needed. Ancient history it. within the bones, you know. 
Do you have any tattoos? Yes, lots. What's your happy place? My happy place is probably the Library of Congress, sitting with a book, observing the people, reading, soaking in all of it. Sunset or sunrise? Sunset. Ocean girl or mountain girl? Mountain. What's your favorite color? Red. We're good. you were actually a pretty important piece for us because my gift seems to be to like get an imprint of how people feel you are utterly unique like you don't fit any of the other tri-types you and Mm. you fit my concept of what my mental picture was and now Mm. I've got a lock on it and I'm grateful because now I'll be able to pattern people off of what I sensed coming off you which was really Mm. really really important especially because all I had was freaking satanic emka so I'm yeah (laughs) I'm yeah, really sure. grateful to have a more neutral yeah. eight, four, five to kind of yeah. go off. Of. <laughs> anyway, get back to work. Thank you. Keep I digging. Will, yeah, Happy digging. <laughs> All right. Sounds Take good. care. Thanks so Bye. much. Bye bye. That's it for today. We hope by now you've realized there's a lot more going on under the surface, and you'll continue to follow along as we take you inside the armor. Where do you sit in a room full of people? Ooh, the edge where I can see everyone. Three words that describe you. Independent, intuitive, and inquisitive. What makes you cry? Injustice and oppression. What is your spirit animal? I My favorite animal is an octopus, so I'm going to go with that. Can blend in where <laughs> needed, can stand out where needed. Ancient history it. within the bones, you know. <laughs> do you have any tattoos? Yes, lots. <laughs> What's your happy place? Probably the Library of Congress, sitting with a book, observing the people reading soaking in all of it sunset or sunrise sunset ocean girl or mountain girl mountain what's your favorite color red we're good